Welcome to the Relaxed Running Podcast, the show that helps runners and athletes in running-based sports transform the way they run. Here's your host, Tyson Popplestone. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the Relaxed Running Podcast. Tyson Popplestone here. Before we get into it today, quick reminder that the online technique analysis is up and running for only 19 95 a month you can learn to run efficiently for the first 20 athletes you're getting that for 19.95 a month forever regardless of how much that price goes up quick heads up we have four spaces left so if you've been thinking about it hit the link in the description to this episode to take me up on that offer we also have one more space available for the falls creek running camp taking place at falls creek here in victoria from december the 14th to the 18th unfortunately One of our athletes from up in Queensland had to pull out with an injury, which opened up a space. So if you're thinking about it, you're keen to come, or you've got questions about that, get in touch. It's literally first in, best dressed. We'd love to have you there. It's going to be a whole heap of fun. But for now, for today, let's talk about our guest. His name is Sid Garza Hillman. Now, Sid and I actually caught up on a podcast that I'm not sure you guys are aware I do. It's not this one, another one called Pop Culture, where I just speak to people from all walks of life. I've done about 121 episodes, and he was good enough to join me on there last week. He's the author of three books, soon to be four. Now, it's the fourth one that's got my attention the most. It's a book called Ultra Running for Normal People. I'll tell you about that in just a moment. But before we do, let me tell you a bit more about Sid. So he is the author of three books with soon to be a fourth. The fourth is the one that I'm most excited about and one that I have him on here to speak to us about today. He holds a BA in philosophy from UCLA. He's a public speaker. He's a podcaster, a certified nutritionist and running coach. He's also an oxygen advantage breathing instructor. I'm not sure those of you who have been around for a while might remember Patrick McCowan, the oxygen advantage author. He was a guest on here, which is a really well-received episode. He's a founder of smallsteppers.com. He's also a Stanford Inn and Resorts Wellness Program Director, and he's the race director of the Mendocino Coast 50K Trail Ultra Marathon. Now, his book, which is about to be released, is called Ultra Running for Normal People, Life Lessons Learned on and Off the Trail. It's a book which is broken down into simple life lessons which he's learned through the journey of his ultra running. It's a really insightful book. I've been given an overview or a PDF of the copy. I think he said it's being released in February, so I'll keep you posted on that release date. If you want to see it, check out the link to the book in the description to this episode. This is a fun one for you running junkies out there. We talk about the love of running. We talk about the pain of running. We talk about everything in between that and what we've learned from the journey. So regardless of where you're at in your running journey, brand new, elite, this is a really eye-opening, helpful conversation to hopefully not only educate you on things all around running, but also to encourage you on your journey towards improving it, regardless of the level you compete at. So with all that said, sit back, relax, enjoy this conversation with myself and Sid Garza-Hillman. Hey, long time no see. Yeah, man. Nice to meet you. I know we haven't uh, had a chance to... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> so for everyone listening, I think most people who listen to this podcast would have absolutely no idea about the fact that I host another podcast outside of this. So um, for anyone who is a, a regular here, uh, I host a podcast which is called Pop Culture, which I think is a, a really clever play on my last name, but no one seems to get that reference. And uh, I reached out to Sid, must have been oh, gee, a little while ago now, 
and we had a we had an awesome conversation there last week but during the course of that conversation naturally like so many conversations with me uh, the the topic of running came up and then the topic of your new book came up and I said well surely there's a whole episode worth of a podcast about your new book which is um, you know getting ready for release in a couple of months time and we both seem to agree so I invited you on here and uh, mate, it's nice to have an excuse to be able to focus solely on uh, the ultra running scene but but you said what just Saturday you, you ran an ultra yourself yeah three days ago <laughs> three days ago yeah an absolute monster like I we can talk about it, but I, on purpose a few years ago, and I talk about this in the book, decided, well, I did it as an experiment, but I did it again this time, which is to purposely not research anything about the race. So I had no idea about kind of, I didn't know about the course really. And it was way harder than I, like I direct a race myself and my race is not easy. It's not the super hardest, but it's not easy by far this was like my race i told the race director who's a buddy of mine i go your race is like makes my race look like a leisurely walk along the thames like it was a whole nother world of i couldn't believe how hard it was and you know we can talk about another book because i'm not a great athlete by any stretch of imagination and it was a 50 55k 32 miles it took me not a joke 10 hours and 40 minutes yeah it was brutal now we can talk about the mistake i made by not knowing what was going on, but it was 10 hours and four. I didn't, I don't run with a watch and I specifically didn't look at my phone. So I didn't realize I was out that long until about, I had about a mile and a half left and I glanced at my phone. And I was like, Oh no, I've been out here this long and I was feeling it. So yeah. Anyways, interesting. Interesting. So experience. what was the, what was the course? It obviously sounds like it was mountainous or treacherous or it there was never had, it never had flat. I mean, I don't remember there being one flat. There might've been a, like a half a mile total con- con- accumulation of flat. Otherwise it was steep ups and steep downs like the whole time it was the word he used to describe it was relentless and i saw that word early early on and i was like that's not a good that's not a good sign relentless is not a good way to describe so it was it was just i thought i just need a break of hills for like a minute and it just never came it was just either way up or way down and so it was pounding or brutal climbing and it was just for 32 miles straight i never got flat I mean, it was unbelievable. I've never done anything like that in my life. One thing that I reckon people who don't know much about running probably don't appreciate is the difficulty, not only of the uphills, but of the the downhills. I remember I went to Nepal back in 2015, and I had in my mind that the mountains that we were climbing would be really hard. And we did a number of warm-up mountains, and they were quite steep, especially in parts. And the guy that I was climbing with, he'd climbed Everest three times. I mean, he was a really experienced climber. And he goes, mate, you think uphill's uh, difficult. Wait until we turn around with these bags and try and go back down. Oh, yeah. Even I then was like, I don't completely understand what you mean. But then there was just so many factors. Obviously, that constant stability, like your quad muscles are constantly tense and then you're balanced. And then, uh, yeah, it was it was just a wild experience. And, and he got to a point with some of the more mild descents where he would just start running because he just got so over the boredom of mm-hmm. <laughs> the, yeah. the slow walk. And I, I think that's the part of the hard part, not just the physical pressure of the downhill balance, the things I just mentioned, but also just what feels so monotonous, the slow pace of the descent. You think downhills is where the fast action happens. So when you turn around and you realize it's just as hard as the uphill, uh, psychologically, I mean, especially in a 32-mile race, yeah. that's pretty pretty difficult to navigate. Yeah. And you're running, you know, it's a run, it's a run race. So some of the hills are so steep going up that it's, it's, it's actually more efficient to climb, to hike than it is to, sorry, than it is to run. Right. <laughs> and so on the downhills though, you run. And so what I always find for me is that the first part of the race, 
the uphills are harder. They take, it's just cardiovascularly. And then the downhills are kind of nice. As the race starts to continue, the downhills become way harder because the pounding on your legs is absolutely brutal because you're running the whole time and you're, you're running down the hills and it's just, it's just, and these were steep downhills. A lot, some of these things were like, some of these I actually had to hike a little bit downhill because running would just be too, too crazy, but running downhill and just the pounding, my quads were just blown by about mile 20. And I don't know, don't even know how I pulled the finish out because obviously it took me a while, 10 hours and 40 minutes to run a 50 K. I mean, crazy, but what anyway, was the, name yeah, of the race, the Lake Sonoma 55 K. And, and it's it, obviously and, renowned that you didn't realize it was renowned because you did no research leading into it for, did, for yeah, being just and, a hardcore and, and, race. And, and, yeah. And the race director is a guy named Skip Brand who actually wrote the forward to my book. So he called me a couple months ago and he said, Hey, do you want to run the Lake Sonoma 55K? And I'm busy with the book. And I go, Yeah, yeah, great, great. He goes, I'll copy <laughs> an entry. I go, Fun. And, I don't, and, and then I don't think about it at all after that. Right. And then all of a sudden the date's approaching and I'm super undertrained. And, and, but, you know, like I talk about it in the book and we can get into that. But it's this book is about, it's for normal people. It's not for elite athletes. And I'm one of these people who just ultra running is not my, I don't, I don't, I, that's not my priority. And so I'm usually t- on, on paper under train, but I am for my race. I run that every year too. That's a 50 K and it's hard, but not like this. I mean, I, it was a whole nother, you know, how they say what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. This one <laughs> uh, didn't kill me, but it also weakened me. Like it completely, <laughs> I'm not a stronger person for it. I'm like, this is so traumatizing. I'm like, and I finished the race and he looked at my face and he goes, I didn't want to tell you, man. <laughs> I was like, this is so ridiculous. I was like, I was laughing. I was like, this is so ridiculously hard. I couldn't believe how hard it was. <laughs> so tell me a little bit about the the mindset of not researching the races before you get there. That with, I understand that if the race is 1500 meters, but when you're talking about a 32 miler, that might sucker punch you with hills and just treacherous terrain. That sounds too scary. The idea of being relaxed before a race or a training session for me involves me knowing roughly what it is I'm doing. And if all I knew is the distance, that's not quite enough. I want yeah. to know the course details. I want to know the competition, the weather. Um, yeah. Perhaps that's me being a, a little too type A. But I'd love to hear your philosophy a little more about why it is you don't do that research. Yeah. And, and again, it was an experiment that I talked about in the book that I did in 2017. So this was a one-off idea. And it was, it was you know, my work as a, as a coach, and we talked about this in your other podcast, but as a health coach, uh, um, is I, the company's called Small Steppers. And it is, so it's, I'm a nutritionist, but it's not about food. I'm a running coach. It's not really about running. I'm a breath coach. It's not, I, I talk about those things, but it's first and foremost from a stress management perspective. My approach is all about how to manage stress, then how to teach people how to negotiate healthier eating running in the context of stress so my experiment with regard to the ultra running was about the stress it was like okay if i don't follow a training plan if i'm not worried about it if i go day by day now have you ever heard of the runner courtney dolwalter uh yes she, yeah she's one, one of the, the best, best ultra runners in the well, world well, one of the best of all time i mean she, she's mm-hmm. insane she's she wins outright not just in women's but all the way 200 miles she's incredible no training plan no coach no coach. I heard her uh, interviewed on Rich's Rituals podcast. And she's like, I just go out and kind of see where my legs are going to take me that day. So I, I, and I had found that out after, like I just found that out, but that's where I was at on that 2017. I'd already done a few ultras. So I don't recommend this for people who are running their first. My first few were very much micromanaging the training and the diet and the, what to eat during the runs. And, but this one, I thought, you know what, if I don't finish, it's okay. I've done a few. It's, I know I can do it. It's fine. Let me just see what it's like. So the idea was no knowledge about the course. Don't follow a training plan. Don't follow a nutrition plan. I mean, I eat healthy most of the time, but in terms of my training runs, I would do 
nothing some days. I would do a peanut butter and jelly sandwich some days. I'd take some gels some days. Sometimes just, I just mixed it up. Nothing regular. Nothing about the course. Nothing about the aid stations where they were. Nothing. Showed up with a bottle of water. No backpack. Nothing. And now the old races, band-aids, extra shirt, socks, drop bag, powders, gels, the whole, you know, the whole thing. And I was like, what if I just show up with a bottle? And I had a great race day back in 2017. Best ever. Relax. Now look, again, I'm not type A. I'm not people who assume ultra, all ultra runners are type A. I didn't care about my time. I just wanted to see if I could have a good day. Same with this race. I wasn't out to, to I didn't wear a watch. I don't wear a watch. I wanted to see if I could finish. Now this time, the mistake I made was did the same thing. And partly because I've been so busy with the book and everything else, I show up with my water bottle and I go, let's see how it goes. I show up to the first aid station at mile six. And by this time, I haven't had anything to eat (laughs) since an hour before the race start. Okay. Race, I eat, I have a smoothie of fruit, which I usually do 5 a.m., 6 a.m. race starts. I show up to the first aid station, water only. Now, I don't know if that was a mistake, but it was very weird. So I show up and I'm like, where's the, oh, this is water only. I go, holy crap. The next aid station is not for almost seven more miles. Yeah. So I filled my water bottle. And at that point I thought this is going to be kind of probably not so great. So by the time I show up to the second aid station, I'm 13 miles in, haven't had a single calorie in like three and a half hours. I am out of my head. I show up to the second aid station. This guy comes running. He sees my face. He goes, sit down. I'm getting you a Coke. And he shows up with a, with a Coca-Cola. And I grabbed a handful of oranges and I just started eating oranges and drink not a, probably a quarter's worth of Coke. And I thought to myself at this point, I was like, this may be it. Like if I don't recover from this, I'm out. And 10 minutes later, my brain came back into focus and I was like, all right, and I just went aid station. and talked about this in the book. I just went aid station to aid station. I was like, okay, let's just see. And I just sort of assessed it every time. So that was the big problem was that first stretch. If there had been an aid station at, at mile six, I think it would have been a very different day. But the fact that I went that long without any food at all, uh, playing catch up for the rest of the day was real rough. Well, that's one of the that's one of the most difficult things I've found. So my my track and field career or my running career was middle distance. Like the most that I ever really ran seriously was, I mean, I dabbled. I had a couple of ten k races, but I would say fifteen hundred to five k was was my real sweet spot. Probably the three k. And the idea of focusing that much on nutrition and things, obviously during the race especially, is just non-existent over a distance like that. Do you even eat? You don't even eat. No, exactly. And over the over the last couple of years, I or specifically the last. Uh, probably seven months I'd been getting into some more marathon training it was the first time I'd really seriously focused on on trying to uh, train a little more dedicated towards marathon like that's a whole nother podcast in itself as everyone who listens to this podcast so sick of hearing me complain about just how I didn't uh, I didn't appreciate how much the work that I used to put in actually got my body to a level to handle that training so I've stepped in uh, into that marathon running going oh, I can do this I used to do it all the time let's go and then my body's like, not yet, mate. We've got to work yeah. back into this. But that's a yeah. whole other conversation that, as right. I said, everyone's sick of hearing me talk about. But yeah. one, of the, uh, one of the takeaways for me on the long run is my least favorite feeling, I think, in the history of my running experience is getting to three miles to go or, or 5Ks to go and just feeling delirious and weak because you haven't nailed your nutrition. It's a horrible mm-hmm. feeling. It's a horrible feeling mentally. It's a horrible feeling physically. Just that idea that every step feels... Um, it just feels like a real effort. It feels like you've got gumboots on to a degree. I can appreciate exactly where you're coming from. But seven miles in, uh, for everyone who's just listening to this podcast, we keep laughing because Sid's got a a cute little cat that keeps jumping across the screen, (laughs) little attention seeker. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) I mean, he's he's welcome on the show. (laughs) But um, uh, 
one of the things, yeah, as I said, that I could really appreciate is just the difficulty, uh, not just physically, but psychologically when you find yourself in that situation. Now, I know from our last conversation, you're not necessarily trying to break world records, but in order to get across the line, you want to have some kind of fuel in the tank. So That's right. at that situation, what, you're 13 miles in when you get the Coke and the oranges, you've still got pretty much 20 miles to go. That's right. 20 miles Coke left. and oranges, say that again. Yeah, 20 miles left. You know, and it was, and that was part of the psychology too. It was like, I'm not even close to being halfway done, you know? And it was like, and I got to tell you, the 13 miles weren't, no offense to road running. I've done, I've done a couple of marathons, not a lot. It it wasn't really my thing, but this was 13 miles of nonstop hills. So this was not 13 miles of flat. This was 13 miles of, I think it had been three hours and three, like three and a half hours. I was already in three and a half hours. So by the time I, by the time I hit that A station, it had been almost five out four and a half hours before i since i'd had anything to eat and i didn't even have a ton i had a smoothie it was like a couple hundred calories an hour before the race started so i had a couple hundred calories fast forward four and a half hours of brutal terrain that that's when i showed up to the second ace here and i was like oh my god now the guy interesting he was the name's angus i love his name he i found out later because i was like find that dude and tell him thank you because he's the reason why i was able to finish because he saw my face and he knew something was not something was amiss and so he made me sit down and brought me that stuff because i couldn't have got it myself and and he and i saw him at a later aid station he goes damn because i came in i go i'm here still because of you because he couldn't believe i was still like he figured i was gonna drop i know it and and, and he didn't want to say it you know but he had that look on his surprise like oh that guy's still in the race that's amazing you know and i said i owe you a thanks and or not and 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 he and he he kind of saved the day um but yeah and, and so it was just this like playing catch up man and psychologically just so rough you know at that point that's why i do these things i do them it's mental i do the i I do these things for mental reasons not for physical reasons really yeah before we get into talking about your book which we'll do in a moment that's actually one thing that i really missed about the running world specifically from my very limited experiences in trail running like to be honest mostly when i was around 13 or 14 was when i was doing trail runs and then i just got so serious about the track that just never really featured in my training program but one thing i remember quite clearly was that people like angus that community vibe that comes out in the trail running scene it's something that i think i I really miss and something that i think you you don't probably get to experience in its full capacity in like a competitive scene like when it comes to track and field it's me versus you i want to beat you Mm -hmm. and that's all there is to it sure you've got people who are happy to see you do well and cheer you on your little support crew but there seems to be in the ultra running scene especially these trail racing communities a real appreciation for what it is that you're going through. And the fact that a stranger comes up to you actually cares about your welfare. I mean, is it, it speaks to the, to the nature of the ultra running, but uh, there's a documentary on Netflix and I'm completely blanking on its name. I'm sure you'll know. It's that race where uh, pretty much you run a, a five mile loop. Oh, it's Bark the Barkley. Correct. Yeah. yeah. The Barkley marathon. And yeah. I, I remember watching that and just seeing the insane oh, that's pain great. that these people great. were putting themselves through. Yeah. But the standout feature again was like, Oh man, like, it seems that everyone cares about how these people are doing. Like it's a, uh, it's almost like a united task where it's like, hey, we're all putting ourselves together through this. We're all a little bit crazy. Let's help each other out because yeah. it's going to be a long, long time yeah. if we're here by ourselves. Yeah, ultra running is. It's. I mean, that's why I wrote the book, and I stumbled upon ultra running. Again, I'm not even like, I don't even have a history like you do. But I was a two to three mile recreational runner. I did a 10k once. I did a half marathon to try it, and then like years later, tried a marathon. But just like a two to three mile a day, a few days a week. I mean, that's really what we're talking about here. 
And so I sort of stumbled in on it from reading this article about the Tarahumara, which later turned into the Born to Run book. And I started getting on trails and it really just something clicked in me and it was just that whole big experience. But when it, when I got to the actual sport of ultra running, it's like you nailed it. It's, it is its own animal in a way. I've done a Spartan race before. I've done road ra- a couple of road marathons, like I said. And there's, there's a little more of a look at your watch, data managing thing. Whereas trail running isn't, at least for guys like me, not that at all. That's why I don't remember the, the watch. Like it's about the scenery. I had probably 10 runners pass me and go, do you, want, do you need anything? I got water. I got snacks like stopping during their race they're there and they're stopping and they're going you okay and i go yeah cool thanks man but like this woman she's like i got stuff in my backpack do you need it and i didn't want to bother because she was kind of trucking along and i could tell she was going fast and she was on the on the 100k there was a, a simultaneous run going so she's 100 she's already done more miles than i have and she's going you look like you're crashing do you need anything and i was like no i'm just taking it easy and but she was like gonna open her backpack and she's like give me food it's it's got this i've heard stories of like competitors in the top spots, one goes off course and the other one who is competing, these are like the elite people going, hey, dude, you just took a wrong turn. Like there's no reason because they would win if that guy went off, off the course, but they're like correcting. It's, it's got it. I hope it doesn't become corporatized. I know there's some corporate, you know, there's a Nike team and a Hoka team and all that kind of crap. But in general, like my race that I direct, no, there's nothing for Like there's no mm. sponsored runners. Like these are moms and dad. I t- this, this is, these are the runners. I've directed this. With, it'll be in its seventh year in April. The Mendocino Coast 50K it's called. These are the people, this is the reason why I, re- I wrote the book. Because they're grant- over four to five, over 70 year olds every year finish my race. Over 70. Mm. This is a 33 to 34 mile run with over 5,000 feet of climb and four to five over 70s, at least 10 over 60s. And they're coming across like, no, they're way faster than I am, by the way. And I'm going, this is a weird sport. They're not in fancy crap. They are show up in whatever. They're, half of them are living in a van probably. And they're just mm. doing this thing. And it's got this very under the radar vibe that I really dig. And I, and I really took to it. It's funny that you say living in a van. It really strikes me as a similar sport uh, uh, with a different target as like rock climbing or yeah. as just the, the Alex Honnold world. Yeah, yeah, exactly right. Subculture. That's part of, I don't know if I told you in the last podcast, but um, like when I'm not doing this, I'm a, a stand-up comedian. Like that's my mm-hmm. that's my big passion. I was over in West Australia doing that for the last four days since we spoke. So I'm not as sore as you, but uh, I've been I've been busy. Yeah, 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 totally. <laughs> but um, but uh, that's what I like about the comedy scene as well is that subculture nature. It's a little bit like you're out there and you're like, ah, like most people are in bed or most people are in a nice house or most people are working a corporate job. And I mean, like uh, each of those I have no issue with necessarily, but it just me doesn't either. necessarily suit me. And there's something about the idea of, of just doing something which is considered a little bit crazy uh, to a majority of society, which is which is very appealing, and I definitely put ultra running in that category. But Me too. with all of that said, what I what I actually really like about your book, and part of what I find so appealing about it, is is the title. We spoke about this briefly last week. The idea, well, your book's called Ultra Running for Normal People. That's right, and that seems almost like a paradox. You, those two things don't get that's, clicked that's in a lot of people's mind. I can yeah. I can imagine it is so. Yeah. Um, I'll throw that at you and let you speak to that for for a little bit. Um, hear a little bit about the sort of motivation behind the book, but also a little bit about the motivation behind the title. Well, yeah, both the same thing. And, and again, like very inspired by the people who show up to run my race. And, and the, you know, again, like my own vibe, I hate to use the word vibe, but, you know, back in Los Angeles days, I was a full-time musician, you know, indie rock musician and um, very in, indie, you know, but did okay, toured, toured Europe and things like that, but never, you know, 
super successful under the radar. And there was this kind of lockup when I discovered ultra running that I felt the same way with that, that I did with my music career it was indie. It was like you, you're like in a club, in a comedy club. It was like that. I love that stuff. I always wanted to be more successful, but I wasn't. And so I sort of was like, okay, if this is my thing, this is my thing. So my race that I direct sells out every year, 150. I, I cap it at 150. It's a small race. I greet every runner when they come across. I love that personal nature of it. I love the connection. I love the being out in nature. I love the, I call in the, the book, wild attention, the forced attention that being on a trail makes. You can't zone out. You've got to be there. And I like the camaraderie of other runners going through the same kinds of things. This is not, you know, look at me, rah, rah. This is like kind of, you know, the last chapter is called test your metal. You know, this is like putting our asses on the line. Sometimes when you stand on stage as a comedian, it's, I can't imagine I've never done that. And it's like the first heckle I'd be like, Oh my God. And I would just run screaming from the club. Like I, <laughs> I appreciate comedians like nobody's business, you know, like I really do. And I used to make my living as an actor, never did stand up. And I really appreciate that kind of thing. So when I went to write the book, First of all, there's a thousand ultra running guides out there that had no interest to me at all. I'm a running coach, but I have no, I don't train elite athletes. I have no, I have no desire Two, what I, what drew me to that sport. And what I realized is that people who are showing up to do my race are not elite athletes, not even in mindset. These are not even weekend warriors. These are moms and dads and grandmas and grandpas and people with full-time jobs and kids and commutes. And they're just doing this thing. And I was like, why are they doing this? Like what? And but I had to ask myself, like, why am I doing this? And that was what I wanted to answer in the book. What are, what did I learn from ultra run? What is it? Ta- the subtitle is life lessons learned on and off the trail. Because I made a complete symbiotic relationship between what happens on that trail and what happens in my life, and it, and, and infor- those both inform each other. And I really dug it. So I wanted to make a book that wasn't another training guide that tells you what kind of shoes to wear. It's got basic guides in the back, but no tr- chart specific no training plan it's all mindset this whole book is mindset this whole book is what do you get when you're out on the trails it's not like anything else you ever do exercise wise period and i'm not knocking any other kind of exercise but it's nothing like ultra running on a trail it's a whole it's the being on the trail and it's the distances of ultra running it's when you're at mile 30 and you're feeling like i did what is that thing that pulled me through it wasn't data i wasn't trying to pick a time i was trying to finish what got me to the point where i was literally going to quit and pu- and push through that. What is what is that thing? That's why I wanted to explore in the book. It's part memoir, it's part philosophy, it's part mindset. A lot of mindset. And a little bit of guide, a little bit of, you know, specifics at the end, but not much. And so I really wanted to explore that and I wanted to appeal to people who in their brains go, I would I could never do that. I'm like if I can do it, trust me you can do it. Yeah. And I wanted to see, you know, if I made that sell, who knows. It's really interesting to see the motivations behind why people get involved in a sport like ultra running because you often think um, and, and it, like I think from the outside, you'll often think that they're people who have been athletes all their life. And that's what I like about the scene is because you, you scratch only the very, very surface and you realize quickly, in fact, a, a lot of the time it's the, the people who have been athletes their whole life who are the exceptions in this particular scene. And I don't that's know. Right. Uh, so I, I first heard of you and we've got a lot of listeners on this podcast who also like Rich Roll. I first heard uh, you speak on Rich Roll's podcast. Another guy that I'd listened to on Rich's podcast was a guy called Mishka Shubali. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you know Mishka, but I know he's of him. A, uh, of him, yeah. yeah. So, so I, I don't know him personally. I reached out to him um, after after I actually had heard him, but then also listened to his book, uh, The Long Run, I think it's called, which was like a Kindle single 
um, like one of the most popular Kindle sing- singles of, of all time. And he spoke about this journey of him from, uh, he was a musician, but a drug addict, alcoholic, pretty much a person who, uh, in his own words, had no hope, had no future, had nothing really going for him apart from his, his drug addiction and his need to get more drugs. And this guy found that, uh, I mean, over the course of, and get the book if you want to hear it in more detail. It's pretty graphic. It's pretty in your face. It was like, oh, my gosh, this is insane. But in this guy's book, he spoke about how gradually the the, the attitude that he put towards drugs and alcohol started to filter across to this at least interest in the world of ultra running. And I found that interesting because it seems to be a sport which uh, quite addictive personalities can I mean, I don't want to stereotype because, as you say, like there's so many different kind of backgrounds that come in. But with this particular reference to Mishka, he spoke about how his attitude of addiction was better placed on something which is usually, unless it's the the 33-miler you just did on the weekend, usually in favour of your physical health. So I don't know from your perspective, like when you stand there, is there a particular standout um, as to what kind of person it is? Like... From what I see, it seems that uh, uh, normal people, when you're in there, are actually a far bigger part of the sport than what you'd ever recognize. I think that's I think that's true. Now, I, I you know I make sure to define normal person as it's not a it's not a good or bad thing. It's like a it just means people who aren't all about running, yeah. essentially, right? Sure. And so I have people who have never run a race before. Now, I want to be <clears> clear. <throat> I don't mean never run an ultra. I mean never run a race. They've never run a marathon, a half marathon, a 10K, and they're showing up to do a 50K. There's something weird and magical, and I don't, I'm not a woo-woo guy, but there's something weird and magical about this sport that gets people to just, I don't know, man. I think it's like I also look at it in context of social media, how disconnected we're becoming. We're be- My first book's called Approaching the Natural. We're becoming less and less natural as, as every day goes by. And I see in this sport hope for people to you know, reconnect at least sometimes. I'm not leaving the world. I'm not on social media as we talked about in your other podcast, but I have a job and I drive a car and I fly in airplanes and I do all the, I raise three, I'm raising three kids with my wife on paper. I'm the most boring, normal kind of person, but I do this thing and it isn't a rah-rah. I cannot get across how not a rah-rah it is, at least for me. And it sure it is for people, but people who show up to my race, I'm not telling, I'm not kidding. 1% of them give a crap about the finish in time. The rest come across the finish line in tears, not from pain, tears from release and relief. And it's scary to put yourself out there like this. And you're all of a sudden you're concerned about failure, but then you're redefining failure because you're showing up to the, to the start line in the first place. And you get to see, see what that's like. And you're moving, you're, you're afraid. And like I was on Friday night, terrified because I'm kind of under train. So I'm like, what is, and then I'm like, why am I afraid? I can always drop, but then there's the pressure. Right. Yeah. And you're feeling so. My publisher, about two weeks before I ran the race, the editor, this great, she's awesome. Her name's Avalon. She calls me. She goes, Listen, or she emails. She goes, So I'm writing the copy for the back cover. How many ultras have you done? And I said, Well, counting my race, because I run mine the day before, I've done nine. And I said, I'm about to do one in a couple of weeks. She goes, Okay, so I'll put 10. I go, Cool. Right on. I don't think about it. Right. Now I'm standing at the starting line and I go, I got to finish this thing. Otherwise, the back cover is a lie. And I start feeling this in my brain, just like this pressure of like, oh, no, you know, and that's the kind of stuff that happens. And I will tell you, this is not an exaggeration. 85% of that day, I was by myself. Mm-hmm. And I mean, nobody in, even in sight, not even a runner in front or behind, by myself. And I talk about this in the, in the book often. 
You start as a group and then the trail turns into a single track and all of a sudden you're by yourself and your thoughts and your fears and your worries and your pressures and your, and your, you're paying attention and you're feeling stressed and you're, it's all, and you start missing your family. <laughs> it's, like, it's, like, it's, it's like a, and that's why people come across crying because there's so much built up and they've had all these things that they're struggling with. We all do. And, and I don't have a coach. You know, these are people who don't have coaches. They're out there busting ass, man. They're making it happen. They're, you know, getting up an hour earlier than usual to kind of get a run in. Yeah. And seeing those people cross the finish line, I must cry like 10 times or more on race day. Just pe- yeah. seeing people cross my finish line, emotional. It's like a release. They hug me. They don't even know me. It's just they've kind of been taken bare. And it's, it's a pretty life-changing thing. And I just, I just want more people to try it, essentially. Man, that could be a good launch pad into into your book. And as I said, I don't think we were recording when I told you, but but just for everyone listening, I haven't had the chance to read through the whole thing yet. I've been sent a PDF and I've I've had a scroll through and I've had a good look at um, a number of the chapters and, and what you've just spoken about there hits on chapter one. So um I, I like the idea and I like I, I really like I really like the chapter titles and I like the fact that I feel as though a sport like ultra running is uh is perhaps a perfect metaphor in, in many regards to um you know the way you approach that is a is a great way to approach life and and looking through this list that I've got written down in front of me you go okay well uh, it seems perfect and so with that let me throw the chapter title at you you feel free to speak to me um about uh, you know what, what what the message behind it is what the meaning behind it is and then man I've got plenty that I can contribute to these points as well if we have time but you get you get the microphone so chapter 1 was uh, to continue with what you're just saying moving through the fear yeah, so every chapter is each its own lesson. So the first one is to the lesson one to move through fear. So this, so, so this again, at, you know, in my work with clients as a stress management, and somebody wants to eat well, and any any challenge that we take on, anything that we want to do to improve our lives, there's going to be stress associated with that because it's a new thing, and there's and oftentimes there's fear. And any challenge we place on us is married to the idea that we could fail at that challenge. And we're all afraid of failure. And a lot of times that happens is that we say we're not even going to try because because of the failure possibility, we're not even going to attempt the thing in the first place. And that's a really interesting thing for me. That's why it's so never about grams of carbohydrate. It's like, we'll talk about that. And like, that's, that's, not, that's, not, that's, like the, that's like the data gathering. What we're talking about is the big picture stuff, the big questions. And I signed up for my first ultra having run two marathons the previous year, road marathons, didn't do very well. You know, whatever. I did okay, four hours and whatever. Didn't enjoy them. And then I stumble upon trail running. I'm like, people run on trails. I'm not even kidding. So I was like, the, the people hike. Nobody runs on trails. I just didn't know. So I start running on trails and it was like, ding, ding, ding. That's the thing that I love. Then I was like, oh, okay, well, maybe I'll try one. So I sign up for this 50 miler, not a 50K, 50 miler. So out of my wheelhouse, I can't even tell you. Like, it's a, not a joke, like completely out of me. And I, by the way, I appreciate elite athletes, you know, like Rich Roll is one of them, Scott Jurek, you know, like these guys, I look at them, I'm like, Courtney Dolwalter. I'm like, holy crap, like it's amazing, but I can't really relate to them. Like they're elite athletes and I'm this dude who is not built like a good runner and certainly not a great runner. And I'm signing up for this thing and I'm, I'm going, what, like, what am I doing? And I don't have to do it. It's a choice. Nobody's for, nobody even suggested it. It was the thing of like, maybe I could do this. The intro of the book is called, I wonder if I could. That was what it was. Mm-hmm. And so for me as a, as a, and again, with my general work, it's helping people and myself even try these things in the first place. 
and and working through this the concepts of fear and success and failure what is failure really to me it's not even trying that sounds cliche but it's true so people who show up at the start line of my race they've already done they're done they've already killed it period i don't care if they only make it to mile 10 they try and they're and they've trained all the way up and they have fear and they got out of their cars in the morning probably only slept 2 hours at the at the night before because it's you're anxious and anxiety all by choice Nobody has to do anything. We don't even have to get up to get food. We can have it delivered to our door. These are choices that we make in our lives to, to test ourselves and to make our lives better, to, to see if we're still alive. It's the feeling of alive rather than being alive. And that's what I, as a, you know, my bachelor's degree is in philosophy. So this very much later on in my years now is always informing kind of what I do with my books and my practices. Like, what are the bigger questions here? And when you put your ass on the line, you have to ask the big questions. You're, you're on a trail at mile 22 by yourself. That's the stuff. You can't distract yourself with a Netflix show at that point. You know? yeah. And so what it taught me was to not try to, to, not try to distract from the fear, because you can't, not in that physical pain, um, to just, just move with it, to move through it, to acknowledge it's there. Why am I afraid? Ask those questions and just continue on and just go to go like, I mean, there was times in this race where I was so miserable and I just would look up and go, I'm just going to take a minute to appreciate the trees, appreciate the lake because this is hell. It's going to be over either way. I'm going to have a burrito probably in three hours. <laughs> you know, it's like and a beer, you know, so it's like, it's like, I'm just going to have to kind of ex coexist with this fear because if we don't, we lose. That's failure. I was a musician. Like I told you, I don't particularly enjoy getting on stage. I have a little bit of stage fright. There I'd be off stage, feeling afraid, and walk on stage instead of that. And that's, and I'm sure as a comedian, you probably, I don't know how comfortable you are, but I'm sure you grapple with some level of, holy crap, what am I doing? And you do it anyways. And that's being happy and healthy. That's, that's the bigger questions that we have to grapple with. So that's why yeah. I wanted to capture in that chapter. It's that, Man. it's like getting to that stuff. It's too easy to not do anything anymore. So we yeah. have to make a conscious effort to do stuff. Beautifully said. Beautiful. Yeah, it's definitely. I was thinking of stand up comedy as you were speaking, actually, because I, I said to my wife the other day that I feel like stand up comedy is the one experience since I finished competitive running where the adrenaline that kicks in before you're about to go on stage feels as though the gun's about to fire for 1500 meters. I love it. You've got a, you've got a slight shake. You're nervous. You're a little bit jittery. I was standing dry. Yeah, I was standing, I, funny you say it, I stand there with the biggest glass of water. I was in the green room. So as I said, I was over in Perth the other day at a place called the Comedy Lounge. Um, it's, a, it's a really well-respected room and it, they put on an amazing show. It seats near 200 people in a tiny little cramped-in room and you go out there and it is just electric. People have paid to go and laugh and you can hear the MC before you. And I was standing in the green room the other day and I, I had this exact conversation. I was standing there. I was, I, before I know, usually I have a good night when I get the little shakes. Like I get these little, little jitters in my hands. Mm -hmm. I feel a bit cold. I feel a bit shivery. I feel very nervous, but I think it's just because my, my perception is incredibly heightened. And ironically, when I feel the most scared, a lot of the time is, is when I feel as though I'm the most on, it's when I'm the best at dealing with hecklers. It's when I'm the best at uh -huh. responding to the moment because like all of the senses have just been That's heightened. Right. But I say yeah. all of that to emphasize your point that there is a very real feeling as you're standing in the back of the room that it would be nice not to have to do this. And I hope I don't pass out on stage and you sort of get a little bit short of breath, but then you get out there and you do it. And as you say, it doesn't matter. Obviously we want to go out and kill. You yeah. want to go out and do really well, 
But as you say, if you if you've moved through that fear to to start that race or to get on stage and to to do your best and you bomb or you flop or whatever it is that happens, there's something that can still be taken away from that. And I, I love I love the idea of moving through fear because to your point, um, it, it's very easy not to do hard things anymore. We're in a very comfortable world where food's delivered to our door, the TV, we've got the man like this this is another podcast there's there's endless options of way to ways to find yourself comfortable so perhaps it's no surprise that books like do hard things mm-hmm. uh so well received by so many people because i think there's something within all of us where it's like oh we we don't actually move through that much fear in yeah. in a lot of respects it's it's something that's uh almost a little foreign to a lot of people now oh yeah i mean look at how we're designed we we we, we are designed as animals we we used to be challenged and we've re- most of us now. By the way, there's tons of people right now in the world that are being challenged. So you know, part of this is like where you and I are potentially in countries sure. that we live in that are relatively safe and things like that. And so it's this thing of like, you know, putting yourself in out there sometimes. You know, like the, if you don't get on stage, you don't have the experience of learning from a bomb, but also have the experience in general of also doing great and also being a being a example for your child. You know, of like this is what I. My kids are very clear by the way, that I'm scared. Can you swear on this podcast? Yeah, man, please. Okay. Yeah. So scared, I have to say it because it's appropriate, but scared shitless. Yeah. I always verbalize that to them. I never, ever, I would fail as a father if they thought my dad was never afraid of anything. He's just fearless. A friend of mine goes, you're fearless. I go, fearless? I'm the opposite of fearless. I'm terrified of most things that I do. I'm terrified about putting a book out because I'm terrified about putting an album out because there's, you know, I'm going to he- hear about it. Somebody's going to be a dick about it. Right. And so yeah. now I'm just going to swear all the time. Anyways. And so, <laughs> and so, but yeah. And so it's like, but, but what's the trade off? And isn't it an interesting species that we are, that you can be coexisting simultaneously with fear and going, I don't want to do this at all and doing it at the same time. It's very human psychology. And I think that I talk about in the book, it's a sort of the prefrontal cortex versus the lizard brain limbic thing. The limbic things like this survival and everything in our bodies physically the shaking of the hands is telling us this is danger and at the same time we know it's not danger we know it's not actually dangerous i know that the ultra marathon yeah okay i could fall off a thing but in general i can stop i can stop anytime i'm I'm, I'm not gonna i'm not the kind of guy who is if i'm my legs broken i'm gonna have to finish i would stop so i know that but there's still fear about it there's still fear of failure. There's still fear. Oh no, my, my book's going to be a lie. And I'm going to, people are going to look to me and go, he couldn't do it. And all this crazy, all that stuff comes up and you kind of got to just go, okay, this is coming up. And you just work with it and you work through it and you learn from it and whatever. And I learned from that experience of that race. Yeah. Yeah. Beautifully said, man. I mean, we've got nine chapters here, potentially 10 to get through. So we're not going to get through them all, especially with how much I enjoy going deep into them with you. But with that said, we'll, we'll do as much as we can with the time that we have. Um, the uh, Second chapter, slow down. This, this is an interesting one. So when I, I'll, I swear, I'll like, sort of cliff notes this a little bit more because I don't want you to go on too long. This will take longer than the ultra marathon. Um, Ten hours and forty minutes. I'm more than happy. I'm walking. I'm I'm in. I'm in. Baby. I'm in. And I know this is tomorrow for you, so we'll see how this goes. (laughs) So, um, so the um, to slow down. So I short short story. I hired a coach the first time I did an ultra because again, totally out of my wheelhouse. The coach I hired was a guy I heard on a podcast named Matt Flaherty. What I liked about him is he was a lawyer and he quit to be an ultra runner. He's one of these guys who was just completely, and just turned out to be a good runner. Not, these are not fancy people. I think he charged me like a hundred bucks a month. I'm not kidding. I was like, really? And it was all on Google. He was in Indiana. 
And I just said, I just need a little bit of, it was for two months. And then I just needed to know kind of what I was doing a little bit. And first thing out of his mouth, he goes, so you're a runner. I go, you know, two, three miles pace, eight minute mile. That's just kind of my thing. Eight, eight and a half. He goes, okay, we're going to have to slow down by about two or three minutes per mile. And I was like, no, no, I can, I can, he goes, not for 50. You can't. And there was the first time Now I'd already crafted my small steps approach. I'd already written my first book, but there was something in my head about running that was like, no, I'm an eight and a half minute per mile runner. That's what I do. And he goes, not for 50 miles, you don't. So his lesson was slow down. And I mean, slow down significantly. So when I was training for my marathons the year before, I was still in that mode and I would push through a 10 mile run, 12 mile run. And I'd come home and I'd be exhausted. I'd be, I'd be laying on the couch, sometimes literally shivering. My wife would be, are you okay? And I'd go, I just need an hour and a half. I need to kind of, I have a blanket on me. He goes, slow down. So here I'm running at 12 minute, 12 and a half minute pace. You know how hard it is to be an eight and a half minute runner and then run a 12 and a half minute pace? Not physically hard. It's physically easy, mentally hard. And I joked about, I've given some talks where I joke, I'm like, people would pass me. I'd go, I could run faster, you know, because there's, the, <laughs> there's the macho bullshit, you know, all, the, all this stuff comes up, right? So I start getting really used to the 12 and a half minute, 12 minute pace. Here's why. All of a sudden I'm running 10 miles, 12 miles, 14 miles, 16 miles. I'm coming home playing with my kids all day. My mind is slowing down. I, I on purpose decided not to like even listen to music. I was just like, can I just, I had twins at the time, you know, I still do. And I'm like, can I have, let's see what it's like to be alone, like to have time to myself. This is what we're all fighting for, so some time to ourselves. And so I'm running and I'm like noticing things. Why? Because I'm not stressed. I'm not pushing myself on every training run to the point where I'm, my heart's beating too fast and I'm exhausted. And I just want it over. I'm like, I'm kind of having fun here. I'm enjoying things. I'm looking at the, looking at the, the, the scenery. And I'm like, this is crazy. So his lesson was, it allowed my mind to adapt and my body to adapt. I didn't get sore. My body made adaptations, muscular, muscular and skeletal adaptations that I allowed myself to do. If you push too hard, you'll get through that run, but you will stress yourself out and you can get injured and things like that. So I really made an effort. It was so cool. And the only reason I ever wore a watch after that was to make sure I was going slow enough. And I'm not even joking. I would look there, I'd go, oops, I'm speeding up to 11, 10, 9, slow down again. And it really changed the way that I, of course, I took that and incorporated that into my small steps approach, which is take it easy, eat nice and easy. We have the long view. This is 50 miles, you know, changing your diet isn't a 21 day thing. It's a forever thing. So let's slow down, do less today because we're doing more later on, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Same mindset. My, my wife often laughs at me because we'll go out for a run from time to time together. And I, I've got the reputation. I'm the runner in the house. She'll do it from time to time to keep fit. Not a love of hers. She doesn't love it like I do, but I'm faster than her over any distance. And I'm confident of that. But we'll go for a run together. And her knowing that, we'll still go out in the first mile. She'll go back and she's like, come on, bud, what are you doing? Like, let's, let's run together. I'm like, okay, but how far are we running? She goes, well, we're like, we might do five miles, 8K or whatever. And we've been together now for 15 years. And throughout the course of 15 years, you would think, she would recognize the pattern, but we still laugh because always we get to mile two and she starts to go, oh, I'm so unfit. I go, babe, you're not unfit. You're, you're running at a pace, which is silly. Yeah. And to your point, I often say I coach quite a lot of community level runners who are, who are relatively new to, to endurance sports. And whenever I schedule a, a long run for them or a run for them, uh, I'll do long run slow. And people often say, okay, what, what is slow? And I feel like the best way I've been able to boil it down and to touch on your point, the mentality aspect, I say run at a pace which feels so embarrassing to be seen running at 
and then slow down. It's, and it's I feel great. as though it's because it. um, so, so many people they go, I'm, I'm unfit, I'm not making progress. I go, You're running at five minute K pace. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Hey, what do you try think? Try running at eight minute K pace and you'll triple how far you can run. I think so much confidence comes with exactly what you said. If you can slow it down, you, you'll start ticking off five miles, 10 miles, 15 yeah. miles. You go, Oh, I can do this. Yeah. But it is amazing and such a such a great chapter to uh, such a great title to dedicate a chapter to because it is so overlooked by by so many athletes even like my wife who know better uh-huh. but still fall into the trap of I saying, did. I'll just I'll just go a little faster I did and we 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 have that in the world power yoga every burn crossfit everything is to faster and faster and again why I love ultra running it's like slow down mm. if you're pushing it you're not going to enjoy it first of all and second of all you're not going to train well you know you will you will pay the price yeah. Versatility. Talk to me about this, being versatile throughout your running. Yeah. So this was a big one. And this is for me on a personal level, but I think it appeals to many, many people. I was very much of a must follow the training plan mm-hmm. in a book by an author who has no idea who I am, who has no idea of my life, my schedule, my kids, my sleep pattern, my work, nothing. So I was training for, I can't remember what I was training for, maybe the first marathon, I can't remember. But anyways, I was following a training plan out of a book. And one morning it said, interval run. So I wake up in the morning, I'm exhausted, didn't sleep well. I've been drinking, at that point, drinking way too much coffee. It was cold outside. I was static stretching at the time, having no, I don't do that anymore. And I go on this training run. I, I do the warm up half a mile. I do the intervals, all fine. But on the way back, I rupture my Achilles tendon. Now I'd also fell about a half a mile in. And so my knees bloody, but I kept going because it said so on the training plan. That's where my brain was like, this is the day I'm supposed to do this thing. Yeah. Cut to my first two months with that coach. And again, I trained for another four or five months after that with no coach and never had a coach since, but he got me he, major. I told him I was writing the book. So I told him I was mentioning him, but anyways. And so he, I go on this trip. I'm doing this speaking series of talks at this uh, college in Wisconsin called Beloit. And, and he had the training plan mapped out for me on this Google doc. And so I, I said, I don't know what to do. This is going to be hard, but I'm going to be in Wisconsin. He goes, oh, just it's whatever. Do what you can. I go, well, no, no. Because I mean, he, I, he was there. He goes, no, 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 you can, you can change it. I was like, no, no, no. I, I, he, and he goes, no, you can, you can change it. Just don't do so much that week. Like just do whatever you can do. And I was like, that doesn't, you can't do that, you know, like in my brain. And that's when I realized we have to learn that's why I'm a small stepper. Like my small steps approach is to help help people figure out what they can take on. It is not a fixed small in the world. It's how much, what are you able, learn how to know what you're able to do. And I've trained people to run distances and they have to take a week off and they think that everything's going to be lost because they had to take a week off. It's like, no, it won't. It might even help you to take a week off. You know, that's why we do tapers midway through training times where we take a little break. And so he changed it. And ever since then I stopped running. I never, ever run from a, a training plan. Now I'm not, some people like the safety of it. I get it. There's no, there's no, no worries about that, but I've never done it. And I'm sure that I could be faster if I did it. I'm sure I could be a better runner if I did it. But again, I got other, a lot of other irons in the fire. And so for me, it's like to do an ultra run and be able to finish it like I did and literally follow no training plan at all. It's pretty great because I get to do all these other things and do that thing also. And yeah. so that was a big lesson for me is I know I can, I can adjust. That's why Courtney Walter. I'll see where my legs take me. She doesn't run from a training plan. She doesn't have a coach. Best run in the world, maybe in the history of the sport. Doesn't run from a training plan. There's something got to be there. Yeah. One of my, go ahead. Oh, sorry. I was sorry to interrupt you. I was just going to say one of my, he's a good friend of mine, but also 
my my former running coach Adam Didick here in Australia. He um he's a, a really highly respected coach, Olympic coach. He coaches a number of top marathon runners even right now. And one thing that he said to me when I was I, I first started running with him in South Australia when I was nineteen. At the time he was twenty five. This gone back. This is two thousand and six now. But even then there were signs that he was he was a good coach because he kind of took me under his wing. And we were trained by a, a, a former top Australian 10,000-metre runner called Sean Crichton, and Sean would write the training programs. And I had that attitude of, of yourself. As a 19-year-old kid, I was going out. I was like, all right, this is what Sean says, and this is what I have to do. And Adam always said, he goes, mate, your training program is written in pencil. And he goes, oh, so that great. means that anything that doesn't quite fit, you can, you can erase, you can rub out, great. you can adjust. Great. And to your point, I, I, think it's, I think it's so important because sometimes – you wake up and you've got a head cold and it's actually counterintuitive, but that mindset of, oh, we need it. We need to progress. We need to do what's on the thing. Sometimes rather than seeing his progress actually holds us back to a big yes. degree. And- it's the opposite. Yeah. It's the opposite. It actually can hurt you. I mean, I ruptured my Achilles tendon on that day. I couldn't run for five more weeks. So the one thing I was trying to do was running to be a better runner. And I, and I ruptured my Achilles tendon and couldn't run for a four. It was almost, yeah, it was almost five weeks. So mm. it's, it, it is, it's like, wh- what am I doing? Why am I, you know? And so I think, I think one thing that elite athletes do do better than maybe the lay people like we are, or not you, but me or whatever, whoever is they do listen to their, you know, everyone goes, listen to your body, but it's easier said than done, you know, and I, you know, and, and this sort of detachment when we're looking at a training plan, we're all like a diet. It's the same, same idea. This is why I get people off diets. I'm like, don't ever do follow diet again is because you're all of a sudden you're detaching yourself out of the picture. You're saying I have to do this thing on a page and you're not taking into account what are you able to do? What are your actual goals? If I knew what my actual goal was, which was to run, I wouldn't have run that day. I wouldn't have gone out on an interval run. I probably would have taken a very light couple mile run because I was exhausted and cold and not feeling good and not sleeping well. And I would have been able to ask the questions of why I'm not sleeping well, but instead I was distracted by the stupid chart. Mm -hmm. And again, I'm not, I don't talk about people who are trying to set PRs. This is for people who are just trying to do have an experience like that, and I think those things can be real counterproductive. Yeah, this this flows on beautifully into your next chapter, I think, because the next chapter is called "Pay Attention in Everything." And I think to launch from what you've just spoken about, it actually does involve us having to pay attention to how we feel and what it is that we're thinking and and how we've been sleeping and things like that. But um, walk us through the idea here, because I I like this just to to sort of introduce the topic back to you. Um, the idea of paying attention in everything. I've heard you speak about this when you're actually out there on a run. Like that makes sense. You're slowing down enough to actually be able to look around and enjoy what you're seeing. But also to what we just spoke about with versatility and progress and consistency, you've got to pay attention when you're not out there on the run as as well. Yeah, and also the very real, because I paid the price on this one, but the very real reality, which is when you're on a trail, unlike a road, or even a swimming pool, you can kind of zone out. I, you know, I swim laps before. You kind of know you're, you're, you're not. There's no. But you're on a trail, and you lo- and you just kind of start zoning. You'll fall. You know how I know because I have like scar tissue on my left leg, my left knee. That is an exact. I fall the exact same way apparently, but because you'll fall, and you, you, you know, your mind will wander, but you come right back. And it's you know, we try to met. Everyone wants to meditate. Well, there is no better meditation than being on a trail or being in a cold tub. <laughs> and, and I do cold therapy, but I've got to tell you, when I'm in a cold tub, 39 degrees, I'm present and, yeah. and nature sort of makes you go, you got to, it's, it's at that point, it's like a survival. Wild animals can't sit and meditate in the wild. They'll get killed. So we have this kind of return. It has to be conscious and intentional for, cause we don't have to, like you said, to, to 
but it is, it makes you healthier and happier. It really, really does. And so that what ultra running taught me was the value of putting myself in situations where in a way I'm, I call it wild attention, like I said in the book, but it's almost forced attention. Like it doesn't take an effort to meditate when you're on a trail because mm-hmm. you, because you have biofeedback. If you zone out and chatter and the, you give into the chatter in your brain, you're down in the trail. And over time you learn to appreciate and to look at, and then all of a sudden in your life, you're more aware and more present. It just becomes this habit of like, you're kind of looking at things in ways that you didn't. You appreciate the time you're with your family more than, be- at least I did. And that's the sell sure. in the book is, is to kind of train your brain to be more attentive and seeing how that relates to your everyday life and your job yeah. and your family and everything else. It's so funny. As we talk about this now, I can see how well the chapters are laid out because everything just flows into the next chapter. I mean, it's no coincidence that with what you're just speaking about there with the cold exposure and the focus on the trail that we move into a a chapter of breath. And this is one that uh, when we spoke last week, I had no idea uh, about how deep you were in in the breath work world and Oxygen Advantage Breath Coach. Two podcasts that I've, I've absolutely loved on here and have been really well received. Patrick McCowan, The Oxygen oh, nice. Advantage. Yep. Um, incredible conversation I had with him about 18 oh, months ago. Yeah. Um, I, I still sleep with my mouth taped. So <laughs> my kids think I'm absolutely nuts. And my wife does it too. I just <laughs> yeah. I go, Bernard. I just got the tape. <laughs> we, share, we share the same bedtime conversations, yeah. I think. Oh, yeah. um, and, and the other one was James Nestor, who was my oh, first great. introduction into that. Well, after Wim Hof, I sort of went down a, a bit same of a thing. rabbit hole. Yeah. Same thing. Went down a rabbit hole, found James Nestor, uh, reached out to him after I heard him on Joe Rogan because I was so mind blown. And uh, man, the conversation with with him just about his book it's it's just a, it seems like an untapped world of of advantage <laughs> to steal Correct. the title of Patrick's book. Yeah. Uh, talk to me a little bit about the breath though. Yeah, so I had like you stumbled upon the Wim Hof thing. I don't even remember how, and I did his ten week course, um, and I've practiced it every day since. It's almost six years now, over six years. July was six years. So yeah. And cold and rounds of the Wim Hof. Now when I, and I loved it and I think it's helped my running and things like that. At least the breath has. And I dig the cold therapy. You know, there's a lot of, it's the science is emerging on it. I'll just say that there's some promising things looking, but for me having done it every day for six years, there's a, there's that little mini challenge of I'm dreading this and I want to do it at the same time. So for me, that's kind of what I get in the tub of every day. Don't want to do this. It's dreadful. Afterwards, glad I did it. And I just kind of repeat that, you know, so it gets me to sort of in that place. Anyways, when I, when I, I didn't want to train as a Wim Hof instructor because the Wim Hof method, if you've ever seen it or done it, you do it. Uh, but I, I do it. I do it uh, inconsistently. Okay. So, but you know what it is. It's for sure. Yeah. Okay. So it's, it's that. Now, Oxygen Advantage, as I was researching and part of in James Nestor's book, because Patrick McCoon is, is in that book and that's who I trained under. Because that was interesting to me because it was geared toward a functional way of breathing all the time. Wim Hof is not. It's an exercise you do, but you don't walk around going, yes. you know, it's, yeah. So when I went to actually say like, how is this going to apply to both my running and my coaching, it was oxygen advantage all the way. And, and, and again, it ties into the slow down thing. So one of the markers, that, I love what you said about the coach who was like, go as slow as whatever, and, and then even slower. So yeah. for me, my marker is if I'm going slow enough, and this is not, I'm not joking. This is how I think now. And this has changed. I don't think, am I going fast enough? I go, am I going slow enough here? If I can breathe through my nose in and out and, and lightly, and that's my thing. And I train oxygen advantage. I do, I must do an hour and a half of breath work every day and I don't take a break to do it. It's incorporated in my life. I'm working on a laptop. I might do a retention and just kind of get that in there on my way into my car, on my way into the drive. I'm doing breath work in the car on the way down not Wim Hof, but the oxygen advantage. 
um, method and just seeing how that affected my endurance, how it affected my awareness, how it affected my, my stress on the trail. So even this race a few days ago, I would slow down often. It's like I'm, I could feel myself going to my mouth. Now, if you're on a hill going up, you transition to your mouth. That's appropriate. But f- the few flats I had, but mostly those downhills, I'd slow down until I could breathe in and out through my nose. And again, I totally credit that with my ability to finish that race because I was not, at that point, I was hurting so bad. I was like, I cannot push this too much. If I can't breathe through my nose, I'm going too fast. And I could see that kind of unfolding like that. So that was really a huge thing. And again, translates it back into my life. Every lesson in that book is what how that translated into how i live my life and it really ultra running really did that for me in a way that nothing else has ever done yeah that was really interesting actually 2015 was when i first heard of wim hof and 2015 was when i went to nepal which i've mentioned to you a couple of times and we went up to about 6100 meters of altitude mount lobache was, was that mountain over the course of a couple of weeks um island peak was was another one i got food poisoning before that one so i didn't get to the top of that unfortunately but uh, i say that to say uh the bloke that i was climbing with who i mentioned before kevin who had climbed everest three times twice at the stage uh he was impressed by the fact that i hadn't done much mountain work before but that the altitude wasn't affecting me i I didn't suffer altitude sickness interesting and i credit part of that to i don't know how much this actually like whether i was lucky it might have been a genetic thing or I was consciously throughout the day, I was I was not talking too much, but I was constantly, especially on the uphills, really focusing on, I was just doing Wim Hof at the time. Yep. So really focused without breath the holds. work. Uh, without the holds. Yep, yeah, that's without right. the yep, holds. Exactly. Yep. And uh, it was amazing. Like I was probably doing that over the course of a couple of hours, maybe maybe five or six times, just whenever I felt a little fatigued. And yeah, I wondered, I don't know for sure, I wondered how much of an impact that had because uh, at the time where we uh, climbed with a lady called Leslie from Canada, far more experienced climber than me, she hit a couple of points where, yeah, the altitude was getting her and <laughs> she was sort of going tired. like, how are you okay? And I was like, maybe it's this, but I, I'm not 100% I sure. I think it is. I got to yeah. tell you, I really do because I, you know, there's, in fact, on this last race, there was a couple of times on this steep, steep uphill. Sometimes there was like a two, I think there's two times where it was a thousand foot climb, period. Like you're just going up. There's just, I'm just like, good. So I would stop and I would do the breathing. And that's when people would a lot of time pass me and go, dude, are you okay? And yeah, I'd be sure. like, I'm, I'm fine because it looks like you're dying. But you're, I'm just kind of sitting there going, <sighs> you know, and it looks like I'm hyperventilating. Yeah. And technically I am, but it's not stress related. It's just mm-hmm. kind of rejuvenating. And I would do 10 or 15 of those breaths and then continue that. And I would get this resurgence of energy. And I just continue to do that. I am, I am a believer. I got to tell you, like I, sure. well, look what Wim Hof's done. You know, he's run marathons in the cold. He's running in the super hot. Guy's not particularly well-trained, I would imagine, you know, and, and he's kind of killing it. So it's, I think there's something to that breath. There's no doubt about it. For sure. Always be training. Yeah. So this is, this is, again, this is how I, again, back to my kind of coaching, but, um, it's a mindset like anything else. So I'm never not in training in the sense of, I always eat well, most of the time. I exercise most of the time. I'm on, I take attention to my sleep most of the time. Now, I always say most of the time. I call it mot in what I, most of the time. Mm-hmm. Because you try to pull that off 100% of times, you, that can be stress-inducing. People who try to eat 100% healthy all the time, you wouldn't leave your house. So yeah. it's, it's, oh, but it's that mindset. It's like, am I always taking care of myself in, most of the time? And by the way, eating junk food is, to me, self-care also. Like we need to blow off some steam. You know, taking a day off from running is self-care. I mean, if you try to run every day that you've seen people like that, that's the type A thing. So the always be in training was a 
establishing a very strong baseline of health and happiness and stress management and allowing that to not be this thing where, okay, now I have to train from zero to 60 to do an ultra. It's like, no, I'm already at like 30 and I just need to go to 40, you know, just a little bit more to do the ultra. If I told you, I mean, this is not a joke and I please, whoever's listening to this, this is not a recommendation. The most I ran any given week leading up to the race I just did, I think I did a 15 mile week one time. I'm not, that's not a joke. So yeah, but I also do strength training. I do yeah. the Wim Hof breathing every day. I do cold therapy. I do the oxygen advantage training while I'm running, but a 15 mile week. Now, if you look at most training plans, you're 50 to 70 miles a week, period. I run two or three miles, four days a week, and maybe I do five miles on the weekends. I'm not kidding. I showed up to that starting line, like uh, on paper, <laughs> super undertrained. Sid, I've got to tell you, uh, just so in case you're hearing a bit of background noise, my wife and kids have just got home. So you've oh. had a guest intruder of the cat. There's a very big chance no I'm going to have a guest intruder no, of my it. son. I love it. <laughs> yeah. So I'm sorry to you and everyone listening, but just That's I okay. wanted to give you a heads up in case yeah. we're just rudely interrupted by a three-year-old no, no, no who could not no care worries. less about my podcast. No worries. Yeah. <laughs> Man, I um, with, with that said, I'm sorry to uh, I'm sorry to throw that at you. I just much rather give uh, give you a heads up than him just interrupt yeah. us. I love um, it. It, it. It makes a lot of sense. Like there's so many factors that go into it, as you say. Like it's not necessarily a recommended uh, training approach, but the idea of just constantly. Be, be training, like always be doing the small things. And in things multiple is, different areas. For sure. You know, how you treat yourself in general, how you sleep, how you eat, how you exercise and run, of course. But people sort of go like, I'm training for an ultra, I'm just put all my eggs in the running basket. Yeah. And I think as a normal person runner, not trying to win races, paying attention to multiple areas of our lives, there's the pay attention thing, there's the slowing down thing, all those things yeah. are linked. Yeah. Yeah. We touched on this one briefly, very earlier, um, uh, very briefly earlier, I should say, um, to see that we're all in it together. Yeah, so this one is means a lot to me because this was, I think, why people come across crying in, you know, in the race. Um, this this is where human beings become human beings and not political parties and colors and religions. And you get you you tear yourself down, and I don't mean in a ma- negative way. You put yourself out there and you become raw. Yes. All of a sudden, the person next to you, you couldn't give a flying crap what they believe politically. You know, you're in it together. You would help them. In no no problem at all, and they're more than happy to help you. And this is the kind of stuff I think we're missing. Social media certainly is doing a huge disservice to us because we do not get deeper than the surface, and we it's all vitriol and what I call keyboard bravado. And so, ultra running, being on trails with a with other people, it I think it does make you finish and go. There's more important things than what we're being sold and clickbait world, you know. And so this was something again that that it taught me to kind of look at people in a different way. Um, than maybe previously yeah it's a really good point it's funny how a little bit of physical discomfort and a little bit of camaraderie can can do that when all yeah, of a sudden tear you just away see past, yeah you whether they've got a blue shirt on or a red shirt on yeah, you just go yeah, oh, you, you just, yeah. uh, you're out here trying to chase the same thing as yeah, me yeah, yeah and to close out to close out the book man it's a uh, uh, test our metal right so you know i think again what's missing is that we aren't again keyboard bravado is a perfect example it's too easy everything's a little too easy Technology is built to make things easier, and I use technology. But I don't think as in general that it's doing us a disservice. It's softening us, and it's weakening us. It's making us more sensitive. It's making us more angry. And to me, you know, putting yourself out there sometimes, you stepping on stage, doing something that I don't have to run ultramarathons. You know, there's no, there's no real practical reason. People go, oh, you're crazy. I go, okay, well, I guess. But, I, you know, it's like it's te- people are afraid to challenge themselves. Yeah. 
And I, you know, and an ultra marathon's big. I get it, it's big, but people can do it. And when you do that, even if you don't finish the race, you test your metal. You go, can I do this? Again, it comes to feeling alive versus being alive. Can I feel this thing? Can I feel what it's like to be alive in that like connection level? Connection to others, connection to ourselves, connection to nature, being there, present and aware. And so I think, you know, that's why I left that to the very end. It's like, put your ass on the line once in a while. You don't even have to tell anybody about it. Just do it just to see what that's like. Are you still here? Yeah. You know, are you still here? So, or are you just distracting yourself at every, at every second of the day? That's so good. That's so good, man. I, um, I like it because it's one of those, it, it's not like a book you just read through and you go, oh, I get the idea. It's one of those ones that despite the fact that I've been in the sport now for 23 years, I can open this book to a random chapter and remind myself, Tice, are you doing this? Tice, are you doing that? It's, it serves as a constant reminder. And that's why I like the idea of actually just going through it with you because it doesn't necessarily give away the secrets of the book. It introduces you to the topic. And uh, well, yeah, what I like about it is it's, I know it's going to be a resource where I, I open it. Like I do a number of books, um, especially with Ryan Holidays, and, cool. and just go, okay, what, what's he saying today? What's, yeah. what's this point? What do I need to be reminded of? Oh, I heard something about that. Uh, which is which is awesome, but I know it's still a couple of months until it's actually uh, released in into the the world, isn't it? How is it? February? February sixth is the date, yeah, and it's international, so people can you know whatever countries they wanted to get it and stuff like that. So beautiful. Well, maybe a little closer to the time, we'll uh, we'll get you back on there and cool. uh, and, and speak and speak about how it's all going, how the running world's going, and whatever else might come up. But man, I can say this now, as it always is, absolute pleasure. To, uh, to have a chat to you i really enjoy i enjoyed the you last too. one i really enjoyed this one um yeah sorry i was a little thrown out there when i heard the family get inside i got three I kids be... man so it was the least you, affecting you thing it. i was like all right i got a cat running through my table so yeah <laughs> you get it okay so that apologies for any single people out there who used to judge people like me like i did yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, me too. yeah. yeah for sure yeah. but man hey best of luck with it i uh, i genuinely really really enjoy um yeah what it is you have to say what the book's about i'm, I'm excited for it and i know um, the, the audience who listen to this podcast will, will really appreciate it. So, mate, consider this one of many. Thanks for com- thanks for coming on. Thanks for having me on. You're great. I'm so. This is like a, how cool. See, the where technology is the best. Like you're in Australia, I'm here, and it's. I just have totally enjoyed meeting. It's really cool, and I, I appreciate what you do. Awesome, man. Thanks a lot. We'll see you later. See everybody. Thanks for listening to the Relaxed Running Podcast. If you're ready to become a faster, more efficient runner, visit www.relaxedrunning.com. 